If you're curious about the innovations powering our world or want to stay in tune with the pulse of technology, then the Advantest Talk Semi podcast is your ticket to understanding the technology that powers our everyday lives. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a curious mind, or just someone who wishes to keep a finger on the pulse of technological advancements, you've come to the right place. Join us at Advantest Talk Semi. I'm your host, Keith Schaub, Vice President of Technology and Strategy at Advantest. Hello and welcome to Advantest Talk Simi. I'm your host, Keith Schaub, Vice President of Strategy and Technology for Advantest. Today, we have the distinct pleasure to be talking with Malcolm Penn, the founder and CEO of Future Horizons. Since 1989, Future Horizons has been analyzing and making sense of the global semiconductor industry's tea leaves. And Malcolm has kindly agreed to share some of the future horizons of the semiconductor industry. Hello, Malcolm. Welcome to Advantest Talk Semi and Happy New Year 2023. Hello, Keith. Thank you. And yeah, Happy New Year back to you as well. It's my pleasure and thanks for the invite. So Malcolm, to get us started, tell us a little bit more about yourself and Future Horizons. I've been in the semiconductor industry really since the mid-1960s. So my career started way back in the beginning when transistors dominated the the industry. And uh, I've lived through a lot of experiences in that time there in various aspects. I've been a designer. I've been uh, in marketing. I've manufactured. I've run a wafer fab. Uh, I've done a whole bunch of things in in that industry sector there. Then I decided to become an an analyst um, when a company called DataQuest, who's now part of Gartner, that got me into the market research business. I've been analyzing the market. And then in 89, we decided to spin out and do um, our own uh, market research. So we focus much more on providing analysis. Um, We've always been independent. We cherish that independence and that impartiality. And we think that that helps us give a, a much more sort of a broader perspective on how the industry works. I kind of liken this industry to being a, a rock and roll for nerds. It's got all of the excitement that you get in, in that music, but it's, it's technical and it's lovely. It's just a, a very exciting business to be in. As you know, the semiconductor revenue has enjoyed really unprecedented growth over the past two years. Advantest and other companies have been breaking all sorts of revenue records, and it's been dominating headlines since 2020. And during that time, most of the experts have been forecasting a decade of growth out to 2030 and for the industry to reach you know, $1 trillion. And this year, originally, I think it was supposed to be around $620 billion, but Late 2022, things started to slow down a bit, and now analysts are revising their forecast downwards. And some analysts are even forecasting a slight 3 to 4% contraction in the overall market. Can you walk us through the last couple of years and why the shift and what's causing the pullback? I think there's several factors at play here. First of all, the industry has never, ever grown on at a consistent level. It's always been highly cyclical. And uh, you go through periods of accelerated growth and then a correction, um, often a contraction, and then it starts over again and starts to grow again. So when you look at the growth rate history over the last 50 or 60 years or so, uh, you do see these huge spikes and and the variations are massive. I mean, one year you can have a growth of 30, even 40 percent, and the next year you can have a contraction of 20%. 20%. So it's a real roller coaster ride. And and that's been typical of the industry. And there are various 
kind of systemic factors around that, economically driven, which is what causes it to happen. The real problem that the industry has had is that since the 2008 financial crisis, um, the whole industry has been in a very benign state of growth. So we haven't seen these huge cyclical changes in there. And that kind of led everybody to believe that the industry had kind of matured. And there were all sorts of reasons put forward why it was different, why it had matured, everything from the geographic spread, the much broader spread over a much wider diversity of end market sectors. And all those things are very true. And But they're always ongoing. OK, we're always expanding the market horizontally and vertically. So they were nothing really new. But what was different over the last decade was that the general world economy had been very, very staid. It hadn't really been as dynamic. And the recovery from that financial crash and was really not a proper economic recovery. It was more driven by all of the economic stimuli, the um, all of the, the, the money that was pumped into the economy, the quantitative easing and all those kind of issues there, which were really trying to keep it alive. So it lulled people into this full sense of security. And then we had the COVID crisis hit, which kind of stopped the world as we all went into lockdown and, and literally everything shut down. And then people learned to work from home, which suddenly switched the lights back on again. And that upset the fine balance that we'd achieved in the industry there and put in a, a, a stimulus of immediate extra demand where we all had to go out and upgrade our phones, upgrade our computers, a better TV so we could entertain ourselves because we couldn't go to the cinema, we couldn't go to the theater. So that gave a huge spike in demand. And there were shortages everywhere. I mean, shortages not just in chips, shortages hit everywhere uh, simply because of this spike in demand. And the industry and no industry can accommodate these spikes. Um, the supply chain can't react uh, that quickly to any significant distortion, disruption in the demand on the upside. And that's why the shortages started to occur. So we really flipped back into what really was a classic industry uptown driven by undercapacity. And, and that led to an increase in unit demand, which then led to price increases, which then added together or multiplied together, actually, to give you this huge 26% dollar growth that we saw in 2021. How is this affecting like, the consumer-driven markets versus enterprise markets? What I mean by that is, I think to go back to what you said, there was this huge spike in demand. Everyone's uh, ordering new equipment. But the enterprise markets, at least so far, are remaining relatively resilient. And do you expect that to change this year or do you expect that to stay the same? What are your thoughts around that? Well, the consumer market and, and sectors like that are always um, much more dynamic and, and much more, uh, I guess, driven by sentiment. They're always going to be a little bit more sort of... Um, fluctuating than the enterprise markets, which are a lot more stable, driven by investment, whether it's industry investment or infrastructure investment. So those are a little bit more kind of mature in the way that they grow. And, and they're more steady because those investments are longer term investments. They're not driven by by emotion so much as by longer term commitments to to growth in the infrastructure. So you always see different market segments behaving under a different time scale there. And the consumer ones are very fast to react. And an automotive is kind of somewhere in between the two there, because that's quite a high purchase 
uh, discretionary spend. And so it does take a little bit of consideration to, to go out and buy a new car. Um, but it's not quite the same as building um, out your infrastructure, building out a new data center, although those are always expanding because demand for data is insatiable. You mentioned the automotive segment. Historically, the wireless communications has long been rated as one of the industry's most important revenue drivers. This year, for the first time, it slipped into second place and was supplanted by the automotive sector as the most important sector for driving semiconductor revenue. He touched on a little bit of why that is, but could you give us a little more color on that? I think, well, the automotive is um, it's on a long, longer lead time in terms of the production cycle of that there. The, the design cycle is quite long. The approval cycle is quite long. They're still built on a production line basis. Uh, most other products are built in batch-related bases, but we still have car production lines. There's a lot more sort of lethargy in these lines here than there is compared with some of the other major markets for electronic component semiconductor devices. So the lead times um, to change the dynamics there are a lot longer uh, than they are in other sectors. But I think you have to put that into perspective because when you compare, for example, the number of mobile phones that we build, maybe a billion and a half mobile phones a year, to the number of cars that are built, which is a 15th of that value there, 100 million cars, the unit volume is significantly lower in cars than it is in, in, in mobile phones. So you're going to have to have a, an incredibly larger semiconductor content in the car before that market will actually be the same size as the market for mobile phones, which is the number one driver for semiconductor devices at the moment. So, yes, it is incredibly important for several factors. The first factor is, of course, the move toward electric vehicles. And, and that's something which has gained pace in recent years when we've all actually finally become a bit more conscious of um, keeping our world intact and not polluting it and not generating a lot of the emissions which are harmful. But the batteries have to be very, very strictly controlled. And the only way you can do that is with semiconductor devices. So there's a huge spurt of demand on semiconductor devices uh, just in the battery alone. And then in parallel with that, we've got all of these other features in the car um, the, the, the buzzword is, of course, self-driving cars, driver-assisted cars, collision avoidance, um, accident avoidance, and all those kind of things in there um, are going to happen and are happening. And, and whereas you probably will never have a driverless car for a long time in a normal environment, um, you certainly will have cars which are literally stuffed full of computers and, and, and microcontrollers and stuff in there, making them safer for us to drive. And, and, and they've done a good job on that there. So you've had that aspect going on, and that's been certainly meaning that the semiconductor content in cars has been growing probably one and a half times as fast as overall in the industry itself. I think then you had to put that into the now context of when COVID hit, you couldn't go and buy a car. The, the car showrooms were shut. You couldn't leave your house. So demand for cars overnight, when that lockdown happened, demand for cars just evaporated completely. It went to zero. The car manufacturers reacted to that by cancelling all their production orders. They, they just simply said, we can't run our lines. Um, but of course, then eventually demand started to pick up again, maybe three, four months later, when the lockdown started to be loosened up a little bit there. And, and suddenly the demand was still there. It was just pushed out. 
And when they went back to buy the parts, they suddenly found the factories were full and they couldn't place any orders. So that kind of caused the car shortage, even though the demand for cars uh, was still fundamentally there, driven by the move to electric vehicles. Um, but of course, the supply side was under constraint because they couldn't get the parts. Yeah, I think it went from just in time to just in case for a lot of companies because of the supply chain issues that, that were incurred from COVID. I want to talk a little bit about memory versus non-memory. Uh, you mentioned also the average selling price for automobiles, for example. You're talking about like a $50,000 automobile versus a $1,000 phone. So there seems to be a lot of room there to include a lot more semiconductor technology. Um, and memory has been growing quite substantially over the last few years, precisely for some of the reasons that you, that you mentioned, where all these new horizontal markets are coming into play. But for this year, at least, how is the memory market being affected in 2023 and how much of that is affecting the overall market? Memories always are the first product into an industry correction, whether it's a, a, an increase in demand or a decrease in demand. Memories are the most commoditized product that we make in the semiconductor industry. When you think about it, a memory has to be identical, no matter whether it comes from Samsung or SK Heining. It, they have to be identical. They have to plug into the same slot. So there is no way to differentiate really your part from your competitor. So it is the definition of a commodity part. And that means that um, there is that intense competition and, and the way they exercise that competition um, is really nuanced more by pricing than it is by secondary factors. So those secondary factors come into place, reliability, dependability, and all those issues. But all the suppliers in memory are, are pretty good. The top-tier suppliers, it's whittled down to a handful. Um, they're all very, very good. It is a highly commoditized item. And they're the first to go into a downturn, and they're the first to come out of a downturn. And, and their changes are fairly dramatic because they're an amplification of the dynamics from the rest of the industry. So they did have a, a, a relatively large increase in average selling price because uh, when you're in a shortage, um, the first thing you do when you can't literally make any more parts you you just simply ration them by putting up the price and you can do that in memory and and likewise the opposite happens when demand starts to slow down um you drop the price to try to stimulate people to keep buying the memory there the underlying demand for memory hasn't gone away it's insatiable whereas other sectors analog for example are always the last to to feel the pain and they're the last to, to recover as well so the memory market collapsed pretty much in June of last year, and that was followed by uh, the micro market pretty quickly because that's commoditized to a, a almost not quite the same degree as memory, but it is much more commoditized. Logic is then much longer to come in because of the long lead times, and that's just starting to slow down now. And the analog, likewise, similar kind of time frame there, that's starting to slow down now as well. Maybe all we need to do, look at when memories recover. That'll give us our first indicator. Memory and micro, yeah. Once they start to recover, um, memory gives you the first clue. Micro then cements that. So, Malcolm, you talked about some of the companies and their geographies. So a lot of analysts have U.S. and Europe and Japan actually growing this year, but the rest of Asia Pacific and China in particular declining. So I wanted to get your thoughts on 
what's the reasoning behind that? And can we expect that perhaps for the remainder of 2023 and 2024? What are your thoughts on that? The bigger picture aspect of that, the market overall, and then the nuances for the individual reasons. I think overall, when I think back to this time last year, um, we forecast that the market growth would come to an end in the second part of last year and that the market would actually crash in 2023. Uh, and that was a pretty brave statement to come out with, well, two brave statements, really, because the market was really, really going like gangbusters at that time there. Um, but we said it would slow down in the second half and, and it would crash in 2023. And as it turned out, um, it, we were absolutely right. And there's several reasons why we believe we, it was going to be that way. Um, and it did slow down and, and that slowdown is working its way through the system. So the growth that was originally projected for 2022, uh, the general consensus was in the 10 to 15 percent growth range. Uh, that now looks like being much closer to 3% growth this year, simply because the second half of the year did indeed slow down and has gone negative compared with the first half of 2022. The forecast overall for 2023, in our view, is still a, a significant market contraction overall. We're in a very, in, in the double digit type of decline, somewhere around 20% decline. Uh, most other analysts now accept that it will be negative this year, um, but they're still very much in the low single-digit number there. And, and we, we don't see that happening. When you look at the momentum, the current momentum, when you look at what's happening in the first half of the year, it's very, very hard to get a decline less than 10%. Really have to struggle to get it down to 10%. Uh, we will be refining that number the week after next, actually, when we have our update event. Um, but it looks like it will be a significant decline. Now, when you have a decline like that, no market is going to grow. Okay, so the markets that will grow, some will decline less than others. And the one that declines less is Europe, actually, because Europe, its product mix is more kind of boring and staid. Um, so it's still growing right now. Um slowly they're still showing a bit of positive growth whereas the other markets are actually showing a declining growth in there china is in a much steeper decline uh, simply because it, its supply chain has been so disrupted they've only just released their covid lockdown strategy um, and allowing factories to reopen uh, whereas for most of this last year um, a lot of the factories there went routinely into lockdowns and and so the supply that they were making or should have been making was um, simply not available to be made so that means i don't need the chip so that means the market for them uh, was declining the fastest so yes they were the worst performer whether they're the worst performer next year really depends on how much they and how fast they can recover um, that supply chain disruption, but it also depends on what the market demand will be, whether there's a need for that product now next year uh, compared with what it would be because of the general overall market decline. So you mentioned the global big picture versus the various geographies and segments, which leads me over to the nationalization of the semiconductor technology. And as you know, we've gone from just a few years ago where semiconductor importance wasn't even on the radar. And in fact, if you said the word chips, often much of the public thought you were talking about potato chips. Uh, to now, every country has semiconductors as a top priority and it's vital to their national security. 
And in countries are investing billions of dollars in subsidies and some hundreds of billions of dollars into semiconductors, things like the CHIPS Act here in the U.S. Help us with understanding why the shift, why, why has this occurred and is it going to remain this way moving forward? Well, yes. I mean, the good part about what you just said is that finally people know semiconductors exist and uh, even the man on the street understands. You know, so that's kind of gratifying that uh, now people are aware of this because we've always known that they've been you know, driving the world, but um, they're the unsung hero um, of, the, of the world, really. But now people understand that. So that's been very good. And the shortages, which was probably the automotive industry was the most vocal in shouting and screaming um, about the need for chips and more investment and things like that. They got the attention of politicians, particularly in the US, I think, and, and, and then in other parts of the world. Uh, and, and so we did have this tremendous impetus to, um, to, to invest in, in semiconductor manufacturing, because at the same time, it exposed the fundamental kind of limitation of the factory that everything has been outsourced now to a high degree. And the concentration of production was really in one or two areas around the world, particularly in Taiwan and for logic and, and non-memory parts and in Korea for memory devices. And both of those countries are pretty close to China. Um, but suddenly uh, we were aware, politicians became aware of the fact that the world and, and their companies and their governments and their GDPs uh, were very highly dependent on production from Taiwan, uh, which China regards as a province, uh, which would mean that the world would be dependent on production from mainland China, which is kind of not what the politicians were trying to achieve. So you've got all of these political influences and practical influences kind of all playing in together. And the simple answer would be build more chip factories at home, and hence the Chips Act from the U.S., now, interestingly, Europe's always had this kind of government, um, European level government support and, and local government support for its industry um, for a long time. I mean, 30, 40 years um, this has been going on. And, um, and so I think that they've been treading that path for a long time. It's not quite as vocally broadcast as much as the US CHIP Act became headline. But other countries are also realizing that they had lost control of that manufacturing local production of semiconductors. So yes, we've seen these investment programs in there. And yeah, at the moment, they're more promised than, than dollars. But in the US, they are real dollars now. We are seeing that the first green shoots of that investment um, actually coming close to producing part. Okay, so Malcolm, we're nearing the end of the show and wanted to sort of open this up for any final thoughts. Yeah, Keith, thanks. Overall, the industry, it, it will go into a downturn next year. It's pretty clear that's going to happen. There will be negative growth. That will be a contraction. But that's not the end of the world. It, it is going to recover. And 2024 will probably be um, a modest growth year. That depends on the global economy, How what happens to that, because the economy does kind of uh, govern the whole ambience of the industry overall. Um, but certainly we will see a return to strong growth in certainly in 2025 
because there will be some cutbacks and that will trigger the next shortage and that will trigger the next upturn. We've had 17 downturns, so we can look forward to the 17th upturn and unfortunately the the 18th downturn um, in three or four years time. But it is still the greatest industry in the world. And with that, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. And the valuable insights you've provided us are amazing. They're fantastic. And I look forward to having you back. Perhaps we can make this a recurring event. Oh, that's very kind. And thank you. Um, Yes, I would love to. And that does it for another episode of Advantest Talks Simi. See you next time. This is Keith Schaub hosting Advantest Talks Simi. And here is some important Advantest news from Hera Hassan, our global marketing communication specialist, followed by some recent event highlights from Junko's Top 3. Hello, Hera. Hi, Keith. We wrapped up 2023 with more events than ever, so I'm excited to see what we have in store for this year. Next up on our event calendar, we have Automotive World from January 24th to 26th in Tokyo, Japan, and Semicon China from March 20th to 22nd in Shanghai. And as always, be sure to connect with Advantest on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram for all the news and much more. Junko, on to you. All right. Thank you, Hera. So welcome to this year's first episode of Junko's Top 3 featuring Semicon Japan held on December 13th through 15th, 2023 in Tokyo. My first takeaway is that there was a significant increase in the show attendance, soaring from 50,000 last year to 85,000 this year. And this surge well reflects Japan's ongoing efforts to revive its semiconductor industry. The number of our booth visitors also increased by 50%. Not only our customers, but also many government officials, media representatives, financial experts, and investors, many of whom are not traditionally associated with semiconductor engineering. My next takeaway is that through our new application-centric display in our booth, highlighting the major applications like hypercomputing, automotive, and 5G, we were able to effectively communicate Advantest's role and the importance of our test technologies to this broader non-engineering audience. I believe sponsoring Smart Mobility Pavilion, which featured the latest electric vehicle, and our president Yoshida-san's presentation on how Advantest is enabling the future through semiconductor testing also helped our audience understand how our test solutions are integral to those applications supporting our daily lives. My last takeaway is that introducing new products enabling such applications, including HA1200 dye-level handler, active thermal control 2kW option, and high-speed I.O. instrument for B93000's Exascale platform helped us enhance our message and project our strong industry leadership. So this wraps up my top three takeaways from Semicon Japan 2023. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Junko, and thank you, Hera. And see you all on the next Advantest Talk Semi.